Kia ora and welcome to this edition of the Maxim Institute Book Club. My name is Jeremy and this month I'm joined by our researchers Danielle and Kieran. Hello guys. Hi Jeremy. Hello. Now Danielle, you were actually the one who chose uh, this book Together by Dr. Vivek H. Murthy. Um, can you just let us know right from the beginning how you came across the book, what made you decide to suggest it for your pick uh, for the book club and maybe just a little bit about what you thought? Yeah, uh, I had actually heard about this book last year. I was on holiday with some friends and uh, one of the girls was had brought this book with her and was reading it at the time and I had kind of stored it away. Um, I'd asked her some questions about it and she said, oh, it's actually a beautifully looking book book uh it, it looks really great and that appeals to me and so I was asking her some some questions about it and so you literally did judge a book by its cover. I really did I'm sorry <laughs> <laughs> um but I was asking her questions about it and she was telling me about um how it's all about community and loneliness and it it sparked some uh, something in my brain um <laughs> because this is something that I've read about and thought about previously um and and kind of stuck in there and then uh, at the end of last year book depository actually recommended it to me as a book that I might enjoy um and I <laughs> Man, was they know you well <laughs> they do I was sucked in and bought it <laughs> that's right like, do you remember how much you like the look of this book <laughs> <laughs> exactly um and I I bought it and um suggested it to for, for this conversation prior to having actually read it uh, because com, uh, community is something that I care deeply about I think relationship and um, our relationships with people who are different from us who are the same as us these these are incredibly powerful and interesting things um, and I was curious to see what dr. Vivek said um, and particularly in response to as he calls it the, the loneliness epidemic. Um, after a year of COVID, I thought that was a, a very interesting conversation for us to have. Um, and as I read the book, I was I, I was encouraged that that I think this will be a great conversation. Kieran, how did you come to the book? Did you what how what was your what were your initial thoughts as you sort of prepared to read it? Uh, similar to Danielle, um, this book was uh, it was Danielle's suggestion, as you mentioned, um, but. I'm all about relationships and community and um, just trying to understand how we can think about improving our relationships with one another um, just at a, at a personal and interpersonal level, but also um, as communities and looking at the larger scale around, um, around our nation and even even bigger, you know, global communities. I mean, digging into the book itself, I mean, I guess broad overview, I always like to start kind of like, how did you, you know, where did you land on it, on this book? Did you, did, did it meet your expectations? How did you feel about so the way that he defined loneliness? How did you feel about um, where he ended up? Just general thoughts at the beginning. I I really appreciated the book. I, I think, um, so Dr. Vivek, uh, splits the book into two halves in the first half he is kind of diagnosing I think this problem of loneliness and what's going on and why is it happening and why is it particularly prevalent now um and this is he, he wrote this before COVID it was released during a COVID year but but written before that um and and then the second half of the book is about community and how how do we respond to loneliness if it is such a problem then then what can we do about it well actually the solution is both one of the most um, simple, but also one of the most complex things, and it's it's relationship and how do we do that well? Um, and 
I, I, I really appreciate that. I think I think that overall arc is, is really powerful and good. Um, I think we can come back to this a bit later. I had um, uh, some critiques, I guess, of, of his conversation around community. I think there is more to be said around that. I think it is deeper and messier and more confusing than, than he was able to cover perhaps in his book. But his his definition and unpacking of loneliness and the health uh, complications that come as a result of that, the, the, the connections that it has to uh, when we are lonely to all of life. Um, and also his, his comments that loneliness is something that actually all of us experience that it's not particular to one group of people whether you're rich or poor or black or white or um have a degree or don't you know it doesn't matter what your life looks like you you are likely to experience loneliness loneliness at some point um uh, so then it's a question of well how, how do we respond to that well and i thought that was really great yeah i think um as surgeon general he did a really good prognosis um <laughs> of the issue and i think again it's one of these ideas that seems really obvious and something that we could all get on board with but um, he's, he's done a really great job of um, collecting a lot of stories um, and this was part of his introduction which is looking at um, doing a sort of whistle-stop tour around the states when he first became Surgeon General and and one thing that just struck him again and again was just that, lo- that, that there was essentially a loneliness epidemic um, and the challenge as a, as, a, as a doctor of saying I'm here for um, broadly for physical well-being and, and physical healing, but everyone who's presenting to me has um, has significant challenges with loneliness, um, and so I think I think he's he's done an excellent job as far as sort of collating the stories and 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 weaving together a bunch of narratives um, from his experience and from others. Um, kind of evidence of the problem. Yeah, mm. yeah, and just being able to um, to to flesh that out. Um, but I think. Like at, at at the end, he sort of talks about, well, we need to design schools. We need to make sure that our workplaces and our communities are built for connection, for human connection. Um, but there's, again, very little as to the nature of that. And perhaps that's just, just the, the natural way of these things, that there's not one big solution for it all. It's something that um, needs to come from the ground up. Yeah, I mean, I think I was really uh, struck by the effectiveness of stories um, because you almost because of the way that you know like he has this kind of diagnosis at the beginning of like here's all the ways in which you know all these things have contributed and i'm identifying all these sort of unique things like you know technology and and the way that we it's enabled us to move around and and leave our families of origin and you know the way that sort of acceptance of different lifestyles of living and individualism have meant that people have left i guess sort of the more homogenous communities that once like he talked about the hutterites um and you know but in order to belong to that hutterite community you have to you know basically sign up to all their beliefs and if you if you don't want to live like that then you sort of are cast out and you can't be part of them anymore um you know and so there's there's all this really great diagnosis and you kind of want that same kind of like scientific precision and like okay how do we you know what's the answer here um but i almost found that part of the i i grew a little bit frustrated with a bit of the sort of scientific diagnosis side of loneliness as well like to me there was this sense of going well, it's not really just loneliness. You know, like when he talked about, um, there's a quote rather early on where it says that when people feel that they belong to one another, their lives are stronger, richer, and more joyful. Um, and then he also talked a lot about, you know, the the 
it was like he wanted to bring things into loneliness, which I didn't really feel had to do with loneliness. Like he talked a lot about people kind of serving and and joining groups and and just finding a purpose and like and I was like the thing is that I what he refers to as loneliness I almost feel like is a twin sort of an amalgamation of a lack of belonging and a lack of purpose um, rather than disconnection from people necessarily that he what he's identifying as a despair loneliness kind of feels like a despair that he's trying to sort of grasp at, which is a twin thing. It's 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 about purpose and it's about belonging, and both of those two things are real heart cries of every human being. We all want belonging, and we all want to know what our purpose is, um, and and both of those things really heavily point to what our identity is, which is again, I would say, a massive sort of you know heart cry or kind of you know a sort of a cultural thing where we're all kind of meant to find out who we really are it's like you know i think i've talked at length before about you know disney movies and you know authentic identities and you know who am i and all that sort of stuff and people are well aware of my um uh, frustration with that sort of um angst but I mean, really, truly, you know, you know, this this lack of purpose and lack of belonging was what I sort of saw. And he even mentions them by name a couple of times, but I kind of wanted him to kind of, I guess, if the book is called Together and it's explicitly about loneliness, I feel like the next step is to actually acknowledge, yeah, well, like why we need a purpose as human beings, because he did a whole bunch of stuff around the sort of, you know, went into a lot of detail around the evolutionary reason why we needed to be together mm, with people mm. and how we'd all kind of evolved to need, you know, socialization and stuff. But what's this evolutionary answer for why we need purpose or why we crave crave purpose in our lives? I mean, one, I, I hear you on, on um, belonging and purpose and, and the connection um, there. But I think also where he sort of lands and what the outcome of the story, the stories that he articulates is that our purpose is in the belonging and the purpose is in the relationships. Um, that that's something that we as humans all all have as our purpose, at least from, from my experience, um, as distinct from um, a sort of uh, a, a career purpose or, a, or, that, or that, that kind of sense of thing. I was a little bit frustrated with the scientific nature of it as well and well the nature of the evidence being used um, but partially I think this is just the reality of, um, of of these kinds of books and trying to tell these kinds of stories like to having your ideas culture. accepted yep which requires a some sort of neuroscientific evidence um, b potentially some sort of evolutionary um, rationale as to why we are how we are um, see stories but I'm, I'm down with stories that's okay um, but there's there's just a, and, and also the other part was um, that the the big rationale as to why loneliness why we should even care about it um, is because it's all of a sudden a health issue um, and we generally care about health issues because they're about our about our physical well-being and so part of the rationale as to why people are starting to care about loneliness is because it's impacting our health through this causal mechanism of of chronic stress or the this the, the sort of stress related um, issues there so uh, i think part of it's just that reality which is what people find persuasive today and i think part of that is also his journey right he was 
Surgeon General, he is a doctor, he comes from a medical background, it, it makes sense that he came into this narrative from a health perspective and so was going to write from that perspective. He sees those connections in a way that perhaps you and I wouldn't um, because that is not our background. Um, like if he was a rabbi, he'd write this differently or if he was a you know tech engineer... Exactly. Who was looking at things in terms of you know human connection or interconnectedness sort of thing, he would structure it differently. Exactly, and and what I found really fascinating um, is that he was um, some people call the Surgeon General America's doctor, um, and he was working for the government in in that way, and yet all of his or the most most of his stories and his solutions are not. Um, emphasizing the role of government, he, he's recognizing that this is this is something that you and I, that all of us, play a part in in responding to well. Um, that it is, you know, it, it was fascinating to me reading this this book and and seeing these stories that are so um, kind of they come from the bottom up. They're community stories. They are just people experiencing loneliness themselves and thinking, oh, what can I do about that? Um, wh- what will make some impact not just for me but for, for sometimes huge amounts of other people I, I um my mind goes to the story of the the female doctor um who was also a mother and and trying to figure out uh how to care for her child while also balancing a career and just set up a facebook group with some friends and over time that group has spread to huge numbers and he knows about it because his wife is now a part of that group um and it's these women asking sometimes really basic things like where's who's a good babysitter um but also much deeper questions of uh, I don't know, um, how do I manage or be, is it okay for me to be a mum and a, and a working doctor? Um, you know, they're, they're working through these really complex issues of life um, because someone felt lonely and recognised that others might be able to help her and in doing so recognised that others were also feeling lonely. Um, and this is, this is a community and personal response rather than um, government policy, uh, which... Uh, it's interesting to see in comparison to the UK where a couple of years ago a, a Minister for Loneliness was um, a new role that was established um, and they've got government strategies um, for for combating this because they've recognised that. And it's, it's a very different approach. It will be fascinating to see over time how those different approaches work. That is something I also reflected on, just how... All of these stories came out of a moment of someone's unique experience or, you know, someone going, oh, this is what I had in my family growing up or this is what I wish I had. Um, and now I see a need for it. And, you know, I, I particularly think of the the woman who, um, you know, she was in that new neighborhood and she wanted to make friends and she wanted to, you know, and so and, and she realized that. Um, actually, she was a gatherer. Like she was a person who, uh, and it's, it's funny because that exact same thing happened to me. Like I, you know, was in Auckland. I was alone. I realized, you know, and I was like, oh man, I, I'm so frustrated. I feel like, you know, all of my friends that I have had, you know, they've moved on into different seasons of their life with family and stuff, and here I am, still kind of single, and I don't really know that many people in Auckland. Um, and and I was like really challenged. Look, Jeremy, you're actually someone who who is a gatherer of people. Like that's actually a strength that you have. And so instead of just you know thinking, oh, woe is me. Like you know, I 
you know, you're actually talented at doing this, so you need to be the one who does it. And then when I took the initiative to do it, the number of people that just immediately responded, like I, I ended up, what I did is I just did an Easter open home one time where I realized that, you know, because I was new to Auckland or relatively new, um, most of my friends uh, were usually invited away to someone else's batch by their other friend groups over Easter weekend. And so I was often, like for the first three years of living in Auckland, I was alone in Auckland over Easter. Um, and it really sucked. And it was like some of the lowest moments of my life. And then one one Easter, I was just like, right, okay, cool. I'm going to see who else is out there who has the same thing going on. And I just put on Facebook an event called the Easter Orphans Open you know, open home. And it was like a whole Saturday, Easter Saturday, the, the house was just going to be open for anyone who wanted to come. And like something like 40 people came, you know, and, and from that one event, now I, I still have, well, A, like that was the first time that my now wife and I like actually hung out together. Um, but from that one event, like I have a whole group of friends that I still hang out with like five years later. Um, and it's just amazing, you know, even the the girl who went to university um, and sort of found herself overwhelmed by the loneliness at university, she started putting it out there um, you know, oh, look, I'm lonely. And the number of people that she thought had it all together. And often the thing that I, I noted about the stories was that it always, um, you know, connection always involved an, an element of vulnerability and also sacrifice. Um, and I don't know if he used the word sacrifice in this mm. book, but it's just like... There's talk of service, but it's not quite... Yeah, it's not sacrifice. the same. Yeah. Service, service is like this high-minded thing of like, mm. oh, yes, an act of service. <laughs> it's you know? a value. Yeah, and I'm like, but... but but genuinely, like the messy kind of, you know, he talks also about how, you know, the, the communities that he came from in India, um, where everyone knew your business and it was just, there was no privacy and stuff like that. Sometimes there's a, there's, well, not sometimes, there is always a sacrifice in having this kind of like joyous, messy community life where everyone's in each other's business because by definition, you have to give up individualism and and some elements of privacy. Exactly. That was my, my frustration with the second half of the book is that I felt like he painted this lovely and pretty and uh, friendly picture of community without discussing how, how difficult that can be. And actually community requires, sometimes it requires being friends with the person that you don't actually think that you naturally get along with or that is not easy to be friends with the person who um is whose whose life is messy all of our lives are going to have really have moments that are messy and hard and difficult and we those are the moments that we most need community around us um so so we need to be prepared to walk through those those valleys with with our communities to yeah to be vulnerable to give up um some of our our pride sometimes when we're in those valleys but and be prepared for people to support us but also um yeah to walk alongside others uh, and i think it it's it felt like a real weakness of the book to not grapple with that that tension that yes community can be fun and beautiful and uh wonderful but it part of that beauty is in its it, the hardness of it <laughs> because it's it's he's advocating for more and and better quality um human connection but connections you're connected to others and others are messy and you are messy and that's not always as rosy as what is what is painted it out here to be um but i think as you're saying jeremy i think that sense that each time there was vulnerability um in each of these stories and one of the real strengths of the book is sort of and one of his stated goals is trying to destigmatize um, loneliness. That it is, 
and he calls it like a, a just a signal like hunger or thirst that we're lacking something um that in this case it's human connection um and to the extent that these communities the stories of, of the community builders or gatherers um as you've called it it always revolves on someone saying actually i'm i'm feeling lonely and and inviting others into that and it's just astonishing not astonishing it, it's just amazing how many others are like oh me too and that and that's how these this this kind of starts that it that it is a very normal human thing to feel loneliness it's a lack of this deep human need to be connected um and so i think to the extent that the that the book sort of makes that message um clearer then it's that's a really good thing he does also talk about um i guess in his diagnosis uh talks about the particular groups that are perhaps more vulnerable and we're very quick to say that the elderly are exactly uh, that the elderly are are vulnerable to loneliness and that is true um but he also talks about young people and uh and the impact of social media and technology for example on on that um and i think that's something that it's easy to forget or or not recognize unless or until you've connected with this kind of research or read a book like this yeah i've actually looked at some of the new zealand stats for this and and the 15 to 24 age group is by far the loneliest as far as you know people expressing they've been lonely some of the time in the last x amount of weeks Mm. Um, and the 25 to 34 range is the second most lonely Um, and the elderly 65 to 74 and 75 plus are the least likely to say that they've been lonely most or some of the time um and it's just it's it's not it seems counterintuitive at the start um but then you do think about some and and he he talks about it in the book around the the role of technology um and one of the points which i I resonated with was uh, dr murphy speaking about the importance of quality relationships (laughs) people who and i think he just articulates it as people who whom around you can be yourself um, and who know you and you you don't need to put on that mask you don't need to pretend you're someone else and that we don't need that many of them um, to get by we just need some Um, but every all of the sort of cultural currents are pushing against that um, with social media there is some sort of need for some movement against that. Mm. It's it's so interesting that the use of technology, like, I mean, the way he describes it led me to kind of write down, you know, the, the sort of sense of, you know, if you use technology as a window rather than a platform. So, like, techno- technology can't be a place that you go to. It, it can you can use like you can use video calling to to call someone and see them and talk to them um, and and have that kind of live interaction. Um, you can use Facebook to reconnect like as almost like an index. You know he mentioned you know finding some old friends and then that was a a way that he basically was able to index them, find them, first communicate with them, but then it transformed into an in person. And I always found that the stories like you mentioned the story before about the physicians, the you know physician mums Facebook group where the story really got to the point where I almost cried was when it talked about you know when someone mentioned that they had a a huge loss or something like that that they actually banded together and went over to the person's house and made the meals and did things that were physically real and like you know in you know in entered someone's physical world to do something practical for them and it's like because those interactions are the ones that actually cost us something, right? Those are the things that sa- that make a sacrifice. And I, I, I th- think about even, you know, talking about uh, at the very, very end when he talks about his parents and, and the fact that, 
you know, they woke, they woke their children up in the middle of the night because they found out that one of his parents' patients had just died and they needed to go and grieve with that patient's wife. And they, they you know, man, I have, I have a young child. I'm about to have two young children. The thought of waking my young children from sleep in the middle of the night to go, yeah, to, well, to, to, because it's so important that someone doesn't do this alone and it would be my responsibility to make sure that person wasn't alone even if I was just their doctor. Like, that's a level of love, not just sacrifice. It's just love and care for a human being that how many of us, and so often it's just like, oh, well, I'm not the person to do that. And it's like, actually, if you decide you're the person who's going to do that, often that means you are going to be the person who does that. That's right. If too many people say, I'm not going to be that person, then perhaps there's going to be no one. And I shouldn't be expected to be that person, you know, and it's just like, actually, the the stories that he talks about are basically, you know, that really have an impact are where people go, look, I might not be the person they expect to do that, but if no one else is going to do it, well, someone has to do it. Um, and that idea of, well, this is the right thing to do regardless of my connection to this person, that sense of a community rightness or like, you know, that and, and I can't remember where I was having this conversation recently, but the idea of, um, oh, yeah, I was ha- actually having this conversation with um, uh, Sir Kim Workman um, and, and he was talking about kind of Maori and Jewish notions of wrongdoing and, and forgiveness that in those, in those cultures... Um, you know, it's not just the individual perpetrator and the individual victim that feels the pain of what's happened. Um, that when something wrong has been done, the victim's whole family—it's like it's an insult to the honor of that family. And and when when and and it's also about the perpetrator's whole family and the community that they come from. There is a dishonor that they are like, well, as a, as a Fano unit, as a as a family unit, we have a responsibility to this other Fano. Um, that that we need to make this right, even if the perpetrator themselves isn't willing to be a part of it. And so it's like there's a sense of a sort of a, a community, you know, and, and he talked about, um, I can't remember the, the Māori word that he used, but the sense of, you know, a disturbance in, in what should be. Um, and when something, and so that the, the whānau has a responsibility to correct the sort of balance between them and, and they can't kind of rest until it's done. But that communal sense, a collective sense of holding what is right um, and making sure that the right thing is done, I mean, it can be oppressive. And, and, and immediately, as soon as we start talking about these collective communities and responsibilities, our kind of, you know, Western individualism, go, well, what if I don't agree with it or something like that? And, and I always, I, there's parts of this where I don't feel like he's done quite enough to reckon with that. Well, how do we, you know, how do you balance an individual perspective and, you know, people's individual rights with the need to belong? But there was just, yeah, there's something about that sort of sense of what is right among us all that is just, it's it's almost like the silent uh, melody that's running through the entire book. Inherent relatedness of us all. Mm. Yeah, and I guess, um, you know, arising out of that idea of individualism, you know, that I, I really liked how he zeroed in on that you know, I think what he calls the damaging myth of like the man apart or the self-made hero, um, you know, that sort of legend or mythos in Western culture of like, oh yeah. And actually I'd never heard it really connected to that sort of primacy of the nuclear family mm. um, before, but man, like just, yeah, that, that sense of the fact that us disappearing into kind of nuclear family units that weren't kind of 
where we where we sort of almost divided ourselves away from our extended family in ways that you know other countries and other cultures just would never recognize as valid um, and what that's actually done to our ability to live together and and to have the sort of flexibility and the the, the um, ability to absorb kind of big life shocks yeah and it, I think that um, it, it goes beyond that it, it's it's also where you get into the the technology and the the movement of our societies now we we move from one thing to another pretty quickly and and both physically and um i guess professionally um we we're not stable and so community takes roots it requires time it requires um investment in in a particular place it requires place um and technology adds to that when when we're constantly looking at things that other people are doing things that are exciting and or we're seeing people on their best days and they're traveling or perhaps not at the moment um but but starting new jobs or new opportunities or you know um their families are doing exciting things and we want to be in that position um and so we're encouraged to kind of follow that lead but that doesn't encourage us to to invest in the the small things um which actually are are so meaningful um and and so essential to to everyday life because one of the um interesting things that he touches on is um i can't recall the precise terms but basically um valuing oneself the relationship with oneself um so connection like when you talk about solitude solitude is part of what comes out of that Um, solitude is a way to develop that you know the, the more we view our friends facebook feeds with all the awesome stuff they're doing um, the more worthless we can feel. And so, um, and that's part of this vicious cycle of, of loneliness, which is why it's linked to depression and other um, sort of mental health issues as well, um, is that we tend to, to, to curve in on ourselves and, and start to see ourselves as not worth knowing or not worth, you know, of course people, of course I'm lonely, of course no one wants to hang out with me. Um, yeah, he talks about the shame that comes with loneliness, yeah, yeah, yeah. which I thought was fascinating. I was like, oh, it, it connected. I understood what he meant yeah. by that, but I hadn't made that connection previously. Yeah, and which brings it back to the vulnerability point as well, that it does take some sense of bravery to, to call out and say, hey, this is, this, is, this is how I'm feeling. Do you feel like this too? <laughs> um, and it sounds like all of these examples, there's a chorus of people who are feeling the same, which again nails that, that point of this is, a, this is a normal thing. It's a normal human thing to feel lonely. And it's a sign, it's a symbol, it's an indicator of something else needs to happen just, just as he talks about as, a hung, as, as hunger if we're feeling hungry, we need to eat. And this is, this is this, the same thing. There's a, there's a deep need for connection. Um, he, also, he also talks about, um, I think going back to a bit to what you were saying earlier, Kieran, around quality versus quantity. It, he talks about introverts versus extroverts and s- yeah. says that extroverts can be lonely as well. Um, and in fact, we you can. can. <laughs> <We> can. <laughs> and actually, you could be in a crowded room and feel incredibly lonely. You could also be in a room with just one other person or one or two other people and not um, or be alone and not feel lonely because you're in solitude and, and valuing that, that space um, and that moment alone. Um, you just also need those connections, good quality connections with others. Um, so I think it's really important that we don't just pass off loneliness as a problem for the introverts <laughs> because it is for all of us. Yeah, I, I found that, you know, something really clicked when he finally admitted that like 
the definition of loneliness is so dependent on expectations as well that actually social expectations of what a certain environment should be or you know uh, what expectations you bring to specific moments as well i mean there's a reason why easter weekend for me was such a a sort of a pivotal moment where each year i was like oh four days of holiday and i've got no one to hang out with because i had you know my expectation of growing up is that Easter weekend is where you, you know, like you've got all this time, you can hang out with your family and friends and everyone's got that time off so you can be on holiday together and therefore my expectations are raised of like, you know, whereas if my expectations are like, oh, thank goodness, you know, all my flatmates are gone, I've got all this time to kind of get stuff done around the house and I've got four days, you know, I can fill it with all these fun things that I've been meaning to get to for ages if that was my expectation. And I, I even found that, you know, interesting how he compared the expectations of kind of Northern Europeans and the kind of Scandinavian countries of the elderly, the expectations of how much the elderly expected to be, you know, in daily relationship with people versus the expectations of Southern Europeans, like in Italian sort of families where the expectation is that the young will always kind of venerate the old and kind of, you know, be there for them. That was a very, it was interesting how practical that immediately just clicked into place. Ah, of course. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and, and, and part of this whole discussion is that I, I felt like even the, the term loneliness seems like this very porous idea that means a lot of different things or is, is kind of a loneliness as a place that has a lot of different entry points and severities depending on the person. So, you know, even talking about loneliness as kind of a mental health problem versus loneliness as a social problem or loneliness as an existential problem. Like there's all these different versions of it. And I agreed with all of the ones that he, he sort of brought up, but I also don't feel like necessarily he it's like, you know, it's the whole, you know, put your hand on the elephant in the dark, you know, and describe which part of it you've you've got. And it is just inherently one of these difficult kind of messy human concepts that different disciplines are going to come at it from different angles. And so he's, you know, he's done a pretty good job at pulling some of those together. Mm. Um, but I think there is that, that general sense that it's, um, it is necessarily a kind of subjective thing. Um, and we're all designed in different ways um, or, or wide we're all wired in different ways and, and feel loneliness in different situations or into different severities. Um, and he sort of makes a distinction between that and social isolation, which is a bit e- more easily measurable and because that's just your level of connection with others, um, like physical um, connection with others, whereas loneliness is more of a subjective, Do I f- am I feeling a lack of belonging? Exactly. He's, he talks about um, the young girl at, at school who's lonely and her, her mother describes to him that what she felt was not, or that loneliness is an absence of something rather than bullying, which is, it's an action, it's, it's doing something. That's right. And loneliness is um, it's, it's essentially neglect. It's a, a product of neglect. It's, it's forgetting that there might be someone at the lunch table who's sitting by themselves again um, and, and forgetting that actually or being so involved in your own space right, and, and not recognising that that person might need some community or to be welcomed into a group as well. But I guess on, by the same token, you know, being bullied would make you feel lonely. Yes. You know, like, and having no one step up to defend you. But, yeah. but that's where I think um, this is loneliness is is this thing that is connected to all these different issues because it's he also talks about loneliness and its connection to drug addiction problems for example people some people who are lonely fill though that with these different responses um and another one is uh, another 
way in which people respond is is through political polarization um and and to to stick to people who are alike to them who think alike where we've talked a lot in our in in our office about the need to talk to people who are are different from us who think differently from us how difficult that is but how important that is even just as a society politically um to be able to disagree well and to hear different points of view and not to do that over the internet, um, over Facebook, where you can just write whatever you want and um, it's just a screen, uh, but to sit across from someone and recognize their humanity um, and, and and listen to their perspective. He quotes uh, Brene Brown in the book and she says that uh, people are hard to hate close up. And I, I think that that is so true and and this is you know it's just another facet of where he's seeing the I think the spider legs kind of or the tendrils of of lone, loneliness eking into these different areas of life mm. yeah I mean I, that that leads into the discussion around I guess the three bowls that he talks about um basically the for, for those who haven't read the book and are listening to this podcast <laughs> um he, talk, he talks about the um the three bowls where the first bowl is a very narrow deep bowl and so that's kind of like the Hutterite community where you are you know a, a narrow bowl would mean that you are you know contained in a very small amount of space and so you're up close but and and so it can be a little bit uncomfortable because you haven't got a, a lot of ability to be far away from one another on any number of kind of ideological or you know there's not a lot of space away from each other but you're very very deep um and so that that sort of community where you do everything together you share everything and um you y- you're kind of held and everything is provided for you as long as you're a part of it. And then there's the very, the second bowl is that very flat wide bowl where you can kind of range around inside the bowl anywhere you want to. You don't actually have to interact with anyone. Um, you, you, you're not shoved up against anyone. It's not very comfortable. It's not uncomfortable, um, but it's also very shallow. There's not, you, you don't really get to go down very far, very deep. And then he, <laughs> he brings, he just says, you know, the third bowl and he's just like talking it's like this bowl is this amazing bowl which contains the best of both worlds and he and he, I, I wrote it down as a quote i copied it out because i was like this is entertaining to me um in this third bowl the sense of common ground would be just as solid as in a traditional culture but individuals would bond on the basis of personal choice interests and ideals pr- rather than primarily the circumstances of their birth this cultural container would preserve individual freedom of expression so that people can be who they are and interact with others as they wish and need to with solitude as desired but it would also offer structures to prevent loneliness by engendering connection and trust and providing opportunities for gathering and i was like and then actually later on he also said you know we've emphasized freedom of individual expression without also ensuring that the underpinnings of community are protected and strengthened now we need to recapture our investment in the collective elements that matter our relationships our community organizations our neighborhoods our social and cultural institutions and we must do this while continuing to, to protect individual expression and i just wrote after in all caps cake and eat it too like <laughs> <laughs> yeah how do you yeah. do that <laughs> it's it's just the like utopian third bowl yeah allow me to be as individual as I want to be and to not have to like I mean I, I get what he's saying that there's this and then this is obviously kind of I guess the the liberal pluralistic society that we've, we've all been trying to kind of like figure out where we sit within for a very long time um, where you know hey you can have your beliefs and I'll have mine and and mine don't have to shut you down or whatever um, but ultimately you know and he talks about this 
idea of common ground. And what's interesting is that the closest I think he ever comes to getting a real vision of common ground is in the story of the white supremacist um, Derek Black and uh, the the Jewish man uh, Matthew who invites him to Shabbat and ends up being friends with him for two years. And when Matthew was asked um, why he was, you know, what made him want to reach out and invite this guy to Shabbat once his sort of, because he'd been, at, he'd basically been at, at this college for a year. And then while he was overseas on a trip, um, someone at the college found out that his father was the founder of Stormfront, which is a white supremacist kind of news, um, news website. And that he had, you know, host and that Derek himself had hosted sort of, you know, white supremacist um, talk shows and, and all that sort of stuff. And he was kind of outed as this hateful person and a whole bunch of the campus just sort of shut their doors to him. Um, but this guy, Matthew, invited him to Shabbat and never once mentioned, for two years as friends, never once mentioned, like, hey, by the way, I know that you're a white supremacist and you think that, you know, Jews like me are, you know, the scum of the earth. And he was asked, like, why did you do that? And how could you just be friends with this guy without, you know, airing the differences between you or talking about the elephant of the room? And he said, I have a fundamental belief that every person has a spark of the creator inside of them. We have a common humanity, but a common repository of something sacred. And it's like, that was the only, I guess, compelling reason why we would need to have common ground with people that we don't like or we disagree with. Like, what is it about, just because we have a common humanity, like, that doesn't seem to be enough. You know, like, someone might be, be human, but they're an annoying human it seems that there needs to be some sense of sacredness that is indelible with, within someone, even if they've done the most horrendous thing. There needs to be a sense of sacredness. And I guess, where does that sacredness come from? You know, like, how does this that understanding, how do we develop that, I guess, that understanding and hold that in common, regardless of what our sort of religious or philosophical beliefs are? Yeah, I think you're right, Jeremy, that there needs to be something that's common because uh, just a, a sense of, because um, it sounds like he is showing some of the um, probably more just progressive sense of um, being as far as saying that the individual expression um, is what holds us together. But that's kind of a, a bit of a, a bit of a paradox in the sense that that's not a, uh, yes, we might share the, the opportunity to express ourselves, but that's not necessarily something that binds us together. And this is kind of the modern liberal challenge um, is to find that something that beyond personal freedom, which is broadly the, the, the second bowl, um, a society that looks like the second bowl, um, people call it atomized, um, which is kind of the, the excessive individualism that we, we live, live by today, which is what he's trying to correct in this book. Um, what is it that, that does hold us together? And I mean, that, that's, that's one option. Mm. I think... Earlier, Danielle mentioned the importance of place. Um, and I think that's something that isn't necessarily articulated here because it is sort of looking at this broad idea of just human connection is a good thing in general. Um, he touches on it a little bit with, uh, with um, both the ideas or, or looking at technology and looking at COVID as well and the, 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 um, the issue of the pandemic. And that sense that he, he is clear that there is, there is no substitute for the, the in-person interactions the the face-to-face um that technology is only valuable in this instinct where in in this sense where it is strengthening the quality of relationships rather than diluting them um but that does need to happen in a place i think i think place and 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 belonging to it to a particular area um 
is something that that can be a way of binding us. Um, I mean, I've always found the idea of um, of loving one's neighbour um, really um, profound that it's a neighbour and not just your family or not just someone else because a neighbour is essentially someone who just happens to be nearby. Mm. Um, in all of their, You don't choose them. And this is the thing that's profoundly not liberal is the not choosing. Uh, it's the people who you just happen to be around in this particular place, this particular time. Um, and loving them does involve the sacrifice and the costliness. Um, but that's where a lot of paradoxically a lot of our purpose can come from as well yeah I was um, going for a walk a few days ago with a friend after work and we were walking through a dog park and her comment to me was wow this is so fascinating it's bringing together all these people who have dogs but you wouldn't normally see them interacting with one another. And I was um, lamenting actually the loss of the town square that we used to have, where which, which was that space um, where people would be forced to interact with people that they just lived nearby. Um, and as you went to the shops, you would bump into different people. And as you went to work or just lived your daily life, there was this common place where everyone just connected um and we don't really particularly in cities like Auckland we don't really have that space anymore or there those spaces are few and far between um and I think I've heard it said that well the internet is now the common (laughs) the 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 public square but but it's really not because we're, we're connecting with people that we choose and that we want to listen to and actually the algorithms are assisting us in that mm. um and they're shallow you know necessarily shallow but yeah. as jeremy was saying can be like gateways or ways into deeper relationships but don't necessarily have to be and um i remember in the pandemic um someone described because you know we were sort of i was at least lamenting um staring at a screen <laughs> even more hours in my day um, through Zoom meetings um, and someone described sort of Zoom and those kind of connections as um, like tinned fruit, not quite the real thing. Um, and that sort of metaphor really resonated with me. It's like, yeah, it's, it's, it's okay and it tastes, you know, all right, but actually it's not, it's not, the, real, it's not the real thing. It's a substitute um, and it can, never, it can never sort of fully satisfy. Again, just that, that inherent face-to-faceness. Um, and he talks a bit, a bit about sort of just even just the, the realities of body language and and just the the sort of the way that we connect face to face is just different. Well, and just even I noticed that you know for us last year when we weren't in the office, the only times that I'd see you were when we we would book in a Zoom meeting to talk about work, and like I wouldn't you know see either of you walking down the hallway to go get a coffee i wouldn't you know there wouldn't be like oh are you heading down to get lunch like let's go get that as well and like and often those sort of like it's weird because it's like this sort of sense of a convenience factor that sort of pushes you together um and there's even the story of um it's neighborliness isn't it it's yeah being, it's being <laughs> in the same place there's there's like a sense of of co-location is both convenient and frustrating you know in, at different times and and friendship is born out of the continued kind of perseverance and enjoyment of perseverance of frustration and enjoyment of convenience, right? And so, um, like I even the story of the woman that he talks about, who um, you know she would go to these conferences um, every month in in a different city, and the only people that she knew were her workmates. And then they were they were, at the end of one of the trips she was booking a room and there was only one room left and the the workmate that she sort of semi knew was like oh why don't we just share that room um and she was like oh my gosh like <laughs> oh I mean, this is so weird why would i share a room and then 
they shared a room and they ended up having these deep conversations because there was no one else to talk to and then it became this sort of lifelong friendship you know and it's like these these sort of accidents of sort of who you end up just being sort of put with that you would never have chosen necessarily um i think that kind of accidental sense of oh i found you and and being seen by someone who had no reason to see you those are like some of the greatest joys of life right of like actually being chosen and loved by someone who has no reason to do so um and i even found that um you know in the section where he was talking about the alexis de tocqueville kind of pre-political association so voluntary associations where the relationship comes first and you know any kind of sense of I need to change your mind about this thing that you believe or this thing that makes you someone else or other to me. Um, and this was coming out of the sort of Derek Black white supremacist conversation where the example of Matthew was that you know even though he was Jewish and knew that this guy was a white supremacist, he chose not to talk about that for the first two years of their friendship. That's right. He's focused on, focused on the person and the relationship. And how hard would that be? You exactly. know, like, I mean, it's, it's sort of told as a story of like, oh, yeah, this is so great. <laughs> like, what a great person. Genuinely, you are a Jewish person living as a minority, you know, inviting this white supremacist who's literally, you know, said publicly that, you know, you and your family are disgusting and made jokes about, you know, all kinds of stuff. And you've chosen not, you had the wisdom to go, I believe that there's something more here that I can get rather than just one-upping this guy. And you're not just inviting him to have dinner, inviting him into one of your religious practices. Yeah. Um, so seeing the fullness of what you believe and live and you're part of the world. Mm. Um, I, yeah, I think it's amazing. There's, and, and it's like, that is an act of, that in itself is like an act of faith. It's a, it's a faith in the fact that there might be something more valuable to come out of a relationship that you might not yet have. Um, and, and coming out of that discussion of pre-political association, there was just this sort of offhand comment that I thought was really powerful about the fact that community gatherings should never be described as family or friends that there needs to be, that, that we actually need these kind of bridge spaces. And he even said, you know, he sort of critiqued that there are a lot of churches that say, you know, our church is a family. And he's like, well, no, you're not. Like, but, but you shouldn't try to be. And actually it's more valuable if you operate as this kind of open space that can create bridges between people who don't yet know each other. Um, and we, we lack those sort of open bridging spaces. And I guess, you know, you've got those... Um, uh, you know, that, that girl who was at, at college who sort of went and did the yoga course and said, I just want to open up this sort of Airbnb space. That's a bridge space where anyone who wants to can just come in and find themselves co-located and find themselves just sharing life and stories. And that's where that kind of genuine human connection can happen. I, I just have a few questions. Um, I'm curious around your guys' thoughts. Um, this book was released in April last year, but obviously... Um, Dr. Vivek had had written it, had done all of his research and talking to people prior to prior to the pandemic. Um, and I I just wonder how how different it would have been if it had been released now, a year later, mm. um, and what he might have changed, what he might have included, particularly around that conversation around technology. You know, you know, we have had to to rethink. Um, uh, how we engage with community, how we engage with different people, how relationships happen, particularly in places like Europe and and America, um, where they've been in lockdown for a lot longer than we have. Um, uh, but I think there's there's some things that we have to learn through this time of well, first, how, how do we 
build relationship through that time and I think we've covered that a little bit um but then also how as we transition out of lockdown and out of a pandemic into more normal life um what what are some of the things that we want to take with us what how do we get used to um kind of community again what are some things that we need to be repeating um or or being intentional about in our lives to ensure that community is fostered and and relationship is fostered what can we learn from from this time period one thing that he articulates um that i was reading about in a later interview sort of a post-covid interview was um, one of his sort of big hopes from from the book and from this time was that um we would start to uh live up to um a lot of our values that we express um in words that that our family um, the people closest to me are the most important um whereby in in sort of normal every day we could get caught up in our jobs in other activities whatever we're whatever we're into and sort of um just take our um those closest to us uh, for granted and i think here he sort of uh, what the pandemic did was partially make us realize um that we sort of don't know what we've got till it's gone um as far as a lot of our connections um and so i don't don't know i'm i'm a simple man and sometimes it requires a crisis to make me realize deep truths um but you do (laughs) um you do it it can often take something of of that magnitude to realize that actually you need to to change your ways and do things a bit differently um and be a bit more deliberate with those around you and your your connections and realize that oh, I actually really miss um, catching up with people face to face, and that that again, this this um, yes, we can use technology more deliberately. I think um, to develop um, as as a way into deeper relationships, um, but that actually just taking all the opportunities we can um, to build those communities and to build relationships um, with those around us. Um, it, I guess in a few words, it's sort of a renewed vigor for deeper relationships with those around us. One of my takeaways from, I guess, a, lo- a lockdown mindset was the sense of, and it was kind of relates to that vulnerability thing of like over lockdown, you knew that everyone was stuck in their house and had nothing to do at night. <laughs> and so, and was kind of like looking for human connection. And so what was really interesting, and I, I saw this happening in a number of different um, friend groups that I could sort of be connected to, was that people were organizing like online quizzes on Friday nights, you know, like, hey, let's do a big online quiz. And like, you know, a whole bunch of my friends um, would, would get together every Friday night on Zoom and like someone would have done a quiz. And, you know, one of them is definitely listening to this podcast so hi Todd um, but <laughs> but what was really fascinating about it is that as soon as lockdown finished that practice of us all kind of like you know hey we're all at home why don't we hang out tonight was just gone it was completely over and I was just like well all of us have children you know pretty much all of us are guaranteed to be alone at home <laughs> most nights like different still, kind of lockdown, yeah, still lockdown. <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah like and, and it, it just it made me go oh there was something about lockdown where we all realized that everyone was kind of going through the same thing and it wasn't you know it was fine for people like well you're at home alone so why don't you join this cool quiz that I'm doing um whereas now it's like oh I don't know if they're busy so let's not you know I won't suggest that or you know there's sort of a more of a tentative thing around suggesting you know I guess hanging out or getting together in a big group um so I guess one of the lessons I'd hope you know that that I would you know try to carry with me is is not assuming that people are busy or just because someone's busy on a particular time um and also the willingness to just invite and and make a larger group of people you know and this is one of the real big challenges is that we so often 
you know, for me, I'm like, oh, you know, I haven't gotten to see, you know, this person that I'm about to invite over for dinner in such a long time. I really want to be able to have like a great conversation with them. And so I'll only invite over like, you know, one couple or, you know, to, to come and hang out with my wife and I. But really, like, what would it mean to someone who doesn't often get an invite to those sorts of things if I invited like three couples you know, and, and had a larger group. Sure, it's going to change the nature of that um, of that gathering and that conversation that we can have. But I guess you know, making the table bigger and and deciding to include people who are not my best best friends. Um, that is, in reality, you know, right at the beginning of this conversation, you're talking about kind of how the the book sort of doesn't tend to suggest systemic changes that need to be made. Because actually, people can't belong to a system. You know, people people who are lonely are going to be helped by individuals who decide that it is their responsibility to address the loneliness that they see around them. Um, it's not going to be a surgeon general who can develop a government plan to, you know, and, and sorry to the Minister of Loneliness in the UK, but it seems that this book is really, you know, emphasizing that loneliness is a problem that is multifaceted. It comes from many, many different places. And... The good and bad news is that the solutions are going to come from many, many different places, but that the solution can only be coming from people who want to offer even just the smallest sense of belonging um, to the people who who maybe they don't even know need that sense of belonging and purpose. Um, and that's a huge challenge to all of us because, you know, as we've sort of covered and, and has, as he covers really well, you know, we are used to this this culture of self-reliance, of, of privacy, of individual success, of, of you know, pursuing um, personal fulfillment. And a lot of the time, actually addressing loneliness and helping others to belong requires us to sort of put some of that down and just open up. Yeah, exactly. I think that's where I've landed as well, is that community and relationship are... Um, something that it requires something of me and it's not just for me it's not just when it's easy for me or or um suits me um actually it is it is going to be hard and it's not going to suit me all the time um but it's it's really important that um I get involved uh in in friends lives in the the ways that aren't straightforward and when it when it is I'm tired and would rather just have a quiet night in. Um, actually, sometimes it is really important that you still say yes to that com- that, that invite or you invite someone over um, because they might really need it and the next time you might really need them. Um, and me not doing that, um, me not being a part of that relationship relationship and doing that well, me not being vulnerable um, or being prepared to be vulnerable in those situations uh comes at a, a there's a cost to our society if we don't do that because um as um this book makes really clear is that the cost of of loneliness is high um it, it impacts not just us not just those people that are lonely and it impacts us as a, a whole community as a nation as a society just to finish us off, um, Danielle, I was really struck by the um, the Kauai study that was done um, on the island of Kauai in, in Hawaii. He refers to it. And, and basically the researchers looked at the a cohort of children that had grown up on that island and, and all of the cohort that, that was studied 
um, had similar levels of disadvantage when they were growing up and similar kind of risk factors for having, you know, poverty or having, you know, um, just terrible life outcomes. Um, and they looked at them over time and they specifically looked at um, the third of those sort of disadvantaged children that somehow managed to sort of rise above that and go on to have like really successful families, successful relationships and successful careers. And the thing that was common among all of them was that they, the, the, the ones that had, had sort of, you know, transcended their situation was that they had close bonding as babies with a significant caregiver. They had close bonds with stable wider family members who were nurturing and available to them. They had stable community relationships. If their family weren't great, they, they managed to find and latch on to a, you know, sort of a, community member that really took an interest in them um, and they specifically mentioned big brothers big sisters as this this opportunity f to actually just have a stable relationship in 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 someone's life and I know that you have been um, a mentor to a young person for a number of years and and just I wonder in in the spirit of going where it seems like Vivek um, wasn't necessarily able to go in terms of describing some of the costs um, you know just Basically, what has that experience been like for you um, being a mentor to a young woman and what have you seen come out of that? Yeah, um, being a mentor is both one of the most wonderful and uh, fulfilling and also some of the most difficult things to do or to be. Um, uh, I've I've spent, I think, four years now mentoring a young woman um, and she is phenomenal um, and... Uh, we spend weekends hanging out baking and going for walks or um, doing crafty things and just talking about life and it's given her space to um, to talk about some really big issues or questions that she's been asking and also just to see my life um, but really really my role is just to be her friend and a constant person in her life who she can just come to and, and ask questions um, and uh, it's such a privilege to be that person. You definitely, um, uh, sometimes I can, I can tell when there's a, a big question coming because often it's in the car and um, she'll be kind of teasing it out a little bit um, and I'll just drive a little bit slower <laughs> and, and wait for the big question to come. But there's also this, this kind of always a little bit of a fear of, oh, am I going to be able to answer this well? But actually all she, she needs is for me to listen. Um, there is often no right answer, um, but she needs a, a, a friend to listen and, and to know that that she has loved whatever she says. Um and there, there's a cost to that because there's, you know, the emotional investment is actually probably one of the biggest costs. It's the, the practical cost of, of time and um, spending chunks of my weekend with this young young person on a regular basis. But there's, there's actually the emotional cost. And sometimes there'll be a stretch of time where I don't hear from her or her mum. And I'm like, oh, what's going on? Is there something something wrong that I need to be hearing about? Um, uh, and, and that's really concerning. Um, but... But actually, every time I catch up with her, I'm just I'm so impressed. She's um, in high school now and doing really well. Um, and she's a she's a well-rounded young woman who is who cares about the world, who knows that she is loved, um, and who loves other people around her. You know, she's a big sister and is an amazing big sister to her siblings. Um, and I, I I hope that my relationship with her and that time together has 
has helped her in that in that process and and learning to to love and be that listening ear for her siblings um and friends well the forward of this book ends with um dr murphy's uh four suggestions for how we can sort of combat loneliness I'm going to read them out and I just to finish off would like to hear from you uh, what resonates with you and what you would maybe add if you were giving a, a sort of sense of, of how to properly combat loneliness and create that sense of belonging and purpose in people's lives and I guess your own life. Uh, number one is spend time each day with those you love at least 15 minutes each day connecting. Number two is focus on each other with full attention and listening. No phones. Uh, <laughs> number three Embrace solitude um, and find that solitary comfort. Uh, and then four, help and be helped. Um, giving and receiving strengthen our social bonds. I mean, it all sounds good to me. <laughs> um, I, I think all, all of those suggestions are, are seeking just for, uh, again, making his point around the quality and the depth um, of the connection, um, not being distracted with the phone, um, being attentive actually devoting time to those around you. Uh, they're just small little habits and practices um, for those around us. But I think, I think it is um, missing uh, what um, Jeremy and Danielle, you've sort of been articulating, is, is that broader sense of connection to those that go beyond those closest to you, um, that sense of the, the commons or the community, um, this, the, the sense of service. Um, so I think you know, I'd, I'd probably add something around um, something around not just service but but seeking out others and and seeking to connect with them um because i think the the story that danielle was just talking about about her um mentorship just points out the power the power of role models um here and which is a formal way of just saying just just people who are doing this well that we can look up to and that's that's why this book exists because he looks up to his parents and the and 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 the, and the way that they lived and the life that they lived and the example they set with the relationships that they had. Um, so I think that there are some vicious cycles with loneliness as far as just the, the turning in and the shame and the, and, and the brokenness that can follow. But there's also some virtuous cycle potential for the more people actually do get out there, get involved, get over ourselves um, and, and try to connect with others. Yeah, I would completely echo that thing in particular that get out there. Don't, don't be timid about... Um, uh, inviting people over or or saying that you're feeling lonely even um telling people around you that oh I just I'm I'm missing some deep connections um can we go out for a coffee um and I think the stories in this book make it really clear that other people will if not if they're not feeling the same thing at that time will have felt it or know of people who are feeling that way um and that is I think the start that that invitation to friendship is the start of connection and community which is the the antidote um to to loneliness mm. when you when you say you know be be honest and vulnerable with you know, I need connection sometimes that I mean he, t- he does talk about how you know people who are in a lonely place tend to kind of almost like grasp you know like oh I need something and, and that makes people go Ooh. um and I guess if I was to add a point five, I mean it sort of comes under the help and be helped thing but I would also say um intentionally create extra pieces of your life um that aren't allocated to someone or something already that that someone can grab um you know and it's 
something that I have for quite a while, like really wanted to make a, a personal, um, you know, someone talked to me about this a long time ago and I was like, that's so amazing. I really want to do that. Um, you know, as much as possible, I always want to make sure that there's an extra bed in my house um, so that if I hear about someone who has a need of a place to stay for the night or place to stay for two weeks, maybe, oh my gosh, um, you know, that, that, that it's like I can always say, oh yeah, I have a bed, you know, like we, we have a place you could sleep. Yeah, there is a place and, and whether it's a bed or whether it's making sure that you, you know, um, make enough food um, or, you know, wh whatever it is, whatever the extra piece of your life is. I mean, the thing is that no one has the right to tell you uh, that you should, you know, create extra space for someone else, you know, and this, and this is so often, I think, the reason why we don't these days in a kind of more individualistic culture is that because people don't sit under the teachings of kind of um, uh, a cultural uh, faith or a cultural um, religion that sort of, sort of defined what is good um, within a sort of mono monolithic culture, um, we don't have that sort of sense of instruction of like, well, everyone's expected to do this. Um, so we're not going to be told, hey, create some extra room in your life or, you know, be willing to give away part of something that you actually quite enjoyed, like a solitary weekend or a, or a time with your family. Um, but actually, if everyone was like, hey, I'm, I'm, yeah, if I see a need, I'm going to, I'm willing to give away some of my family's kind of peaceful time in order to invite someone in, like, you know, growing up my parents would always invite people who were from because my parents are american they they would always invite americans who were in new zealand over christmas time to come and do christmas with us and like that is so unusual to me to like be like hey christmas time which is this wonderful time with your family that's like this really precious time let's invite total strangers into that um when I stop and think about it, but actually growing up, it was the most normal thing in the world. And we have friends all around the world now because of those, those connections that we made, even just for sometimes one night or one day of the year. Um, and I guess that impetus to give away and create extra pieces of your life that can be given away to anyone who needs them, um, I think is probably the biggest challenge that I've sort of been reminded of um, reading this book. So thanks for joining me for the conversation. Thanks, Jeremy. You're welcome. <laughs> so thanks for joining me for this conversation for the book club this time. Um, and thanks to everyone listening uh, for joining us. Uh, if you have any comments, if you have any questions, if you have any feedback, feel free to get in touch with us on bookclub at maxim.org.nz. And make sure if you would like to sign up to receive notifications of the next books that we are reading, um, you can also email that email address and ask for the emails to be sent directly to you or just sign up to our monthly forum emails uh, on our website and you will get that as well. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time.